So welcome everybody to week one of the idea of the university with theory underground. I am one of the three instructors here. You can just call me Dave or Plebe if that's a nickname you've used for me. I still like that. I think it's fun. And Brian Weeks and Ann Snellgrove are the other two instructors here. I'm going to let them both introduce themselves in a moment. But one thing I wanted to say up front is, you know, as we think about the university through this sort of positive critique lens, uh, I just up front want to say there's a whole thing that happens in the first week of classes at university where a lot of professors, they might be really good lecturers, but they focus on the syllabus and maybe going around and everyone says their name and their major or the town they're from. And what I wanted to do was say, let's not do it in that order. We will do the syllabus review. Um, basically, that'll be number three item today. First, I will give a little intro. Then Brian will give a little intro. Both of them are about research and study and kind of the mindset that we have approaching this course. Anne's going to walk everyone through the syllabus. And then that'll be an opportunity for everybody who's been along for the ride so far. Oh, snap. I got to uh, admit a few more people into the, into the group here. Oops. Welcome to the group, everybody. Sorry, I forgot there was a waiting room here. Hello, hello. Welcome, welcome, Andrew, Cadell, Nance. Awesome. Okay, now I I, uh, I let you all in in the middle of a statement, but it's perfect timing. I was just saying, we're not going to do the whole go around the circle and say our names and our majors. We're not going to spend the first half talking about the syllabus. Instead, we're going to talk about some big ideas and our mindset, specifically me giving a little lecture, then Brian giving a little lecture, and then Anne is going to do the syllabus walkthrough thing. And then everybody gets to if they want to participate in the recorded version of this conversation, right? Because you don't have to participate in the recorded version if you don't want your voice on the internet, right? You can just participate in the forum. But uh, if you want to participate with your voice after we've gone through the syllabus will be a good opportunity for everybody who's been thinking about all of the things that we've talked about to participate. And that'll be where you can introduce yourself and say whatever you're comfortable saying about yourself. Uh, so for now, I'll just lead off with this. When I started at the university, I was under the impression that everything important that you can get out of a book can be summarized. And I think it probably took six years before I really realized how flawed that assumption was. Has anybody in the group here seen or heard the interview with Bert Vanderkar that's a sort of testimonial for Theory Underground? Show of hands. Okay, that's basically everybody. I know Mikey has, Ann has, Cadell has, Nance has, Andrew has, Brian has. Perfect. Oh. Letting, letting, letting Eamon and Aiden into the chat as well. I think that I'm going to just go ahead and say 
in the future, I need to make it so that uh, other people are allowed to admit people so that if I'm talking, I don't get distracted and leave people out like that. But uh, one thing I'm going to do right now, guys, is uh, pull up the live stream link for the people just joining. And I'm going to share that in the chat. And uh, if you want to go back over everything that's been said so far, you can kind of just tap out and then go to back to the beginning and fast forward through the unlisted live stream that's right there. If anybody else joins this discussion in the next 10 minutes, someone else, please explain that to them while I continue talking. So I think I, I think I should be good to go now. And if anybody sees anybody in the waiting room, do let me know. Okay, but bringing it back around, everybody's seen, uh, except for obviously now we've got a couple of new people in the chat, but everybody else has seen the, where Bert Vanderkar is getting interviewed in his apartment with his beautiful bookcases and everything like that. And he's talking about why people who are out of the university system, people who've graduated or never went or might be retired, people who are in non-traditional places in their life deciding to get serious about philosophy have a huge advantage over people who are taking a bunch of courses at the university today. He doesn't talk about it the way that Carl Jaspers is going to talk about it, which would include saying something along the lines of, yeah, uh, when you have a lot of busy work and extra quizzes every week and all this other stuff, you're, you're basically turning the university into a high school. And then that undermines that academic freedom and autonomy that any person living the intellectual life is going to want to have. He doesn't quite say that. Uh, and that is obviously one of the things Jaspers would say. But what he does say is that you're so busy you're so overwhelmed. You're so swamped with all of this crap at the university. It's not futile. There is a good there. There, you know, it's learning acad acad academic. Uh, how do I say it? Learning to jump through the hoops. Bureaucratic acrobatics. The bureaucratic acro acrobatics. Thank you. Is a useful life skill. Yeah, it's like a obstacle course, but sadly, most of the obstacles are obstacles to us actually being able to dive deeper into these texts. And so Bert was saying that one of the wonderful things about being retired is that he's able to read these things at whatever pace he needs to. You know, that's actually something I'm jealous of every day. He just gets to, he gets to spend five hours reading six pages of the phenomenology of spirit. And then he goes for a long walk. And then he comes back a few days later when he wants to, and he does it again. And, and he might reread a section and it doesn't matter. He doesn't feel this need to produce something for his career immediately. So he's really just living in the questions. And obviously a lot of us are not in that situation, but the, the nice thing about this course is that this text is small. The reading this week was the shortest it will ever be. The reading next week will be the longest it will ever be. So I'm, we're hoping that your motivation and inspiration that comes from this day will motivate you to get through chapters one through three in the next week. And I would say maybe even try to do that twice. I know that Andrew is a good example of somebody who did so already. He listened to the introduction three times before writing his reflection on it. So the only thing I really wanted to say is about rereading. 
in that testimonial that I'd brought up about where Bert is talking about these things, he gets into talking about how you haven't really read something until you've read it three times. When I first heard that, I remember actually feeling a little salty, a little sad, a little like, God damn it. No, because think about it. That means I haven't read anything. <laughs> you have to read it three times. I haven't read Being in Time, and I spent a lot of time on that book. You know, I definitely haven't read Phenomenology of Spirit. I've only read that once, right? And so the, the first thing is sort of a reactive, like, oh, that's sort of elitist. Like, who has that kind of time and energy, right? But hey, the goal should be that we all have that kind of time and energy so that we can actually do the things we want to do. And I think it's a worthy goal, even if we don't ever get there, a sort of objea of our academic life to try to get to that third reading. And that also gave me a big sigh of relief after about six months of wrestling with this. The big sigh of relief comes like this. It comes, it makes me go, I don't have to get this all right now. I don't have to have my take right now. I don't have to blah, 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 blah. There's all these things we feel like we have to do. You start a book, you better finish the book. Okay, well, guess what? That gets, that, that's over. That might be applicable to fiction when you're growing up. Like, yeah, you start a book, you finish, you start Harry Potter, you finish Harry Potter. You got to know what happens, right? But with nonfiction, it's different. You can get more from one chapter of a nonfiction book than an entire uh, textbook sometimes, right? When you're dealing with a primary source. And so giving up on the dream of completion and full understanding on a first reading is a stress reliever. It also kind of makes you realize, oh, all these people putting out pictures of all the books that they just bought or putting out videos about the 10 books they read this year makes you go, wait a minute. Are those books that are worth rereading though? How do I know that that book is worth rereading if the person telling me about that book, first of all, just bought it on some good authority that it's good or a recommendation off of Amazon or two, they just finished reading it for the first time. Because I've read books for the first time where I felt excited and I wanted to talk with somebody about it. And then later I went back and reread it and I stopped part of the way through and I was like, ah, this is, there's so many better books than this, right? And so in the world of theory, I, we all want to be on the shoulders of giants, some of the greatest thinkers who thought the hardest questions and developed the best concepts in the history of ideas. And they're not great texts and they're not great thinkers if they're not worth rereading and you can't know if they're worth reading until the first read. So what are the three readings? Why does he break it into three things? I think he got this from Aristotle or Hegel. I forget which one of them said it in a sort of offhanded way in a lecture one time. But the first reading is just to get the lay of the land. What's there? What's happening? The second reading. Now, that's where you've got to put it in your own words. That's where you do exegesis. That's where you turn on your Instagram like Andrew and read it aloud and then break down what you're talking about as you go. That's the exegetical reading. The third reading is where you are trying to tie it into everything you know. You're relating it to everything, to these other thinkers, these other concepts. This is where you suddenly, it's on the third reading of being in time where you finally can say, all right, being. 
is what he's saying that nobody's seriously thought about being in the history of philosophies. No one seriously thought about this. Is that applicable to Hegel? Or has he completely misunderstood Hegel? Or is he just being provocative? What would Hegel say? What did Deleuze say? What did Badu say? What did Levinas, sorry, you can start bringing in all these other criticisms of Heidegger's position, but you can't bring those into a serious dialogue with him until you know for yourself what he's actually saying. And you're only going to get that from the second reading. And that first reading, you're not going to get most of it. So I hope that that makes you actually, in a sort of sense, you'll feel overwhelmed up front, but then maybe a little relieved as you realize you've got the rest of your life to figure this shit out. The last thing is that the, on the internet, everyone skips the first and second reading, okay? The tendency on the internet is for people to jump to relating what they're reading to everything else they've ever read or heard other people reference. And that's this tendency, and we all do it, where you go, someone's like saying, well, what he's saying about this or what she's saying about that, blah, blah, blah. And then you go, oh, but is that kind of like what Deleuze is saying when Deleuze says this? Whoa, you're on the third reading already. Did you do the first and second? Okay. That's an implicit critique of ourselves. It's an implicit critique of the entire influencer sphere when it comes to the world of theory, theory gram, theory tube, theory TikTok, if there is a theory Twitter, all of them. So uh, overwhelmed and relieved at the same time. That's how I feel whenever I think about this idea of the three readings. So um, with that, thank you. I'm going to turn it over to Brian. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, I think we're all in the morning time. Um, I don't have anything terribly highly prepared this week. Next week, I um, certainly will. Am I quiet? Um, hopefully, I'll just talk really loud. Uh, oh, you don't want to wake up your baby, probably, huh? He's awake. He's yeah, he's fine. They're playing in the living room, so it'll be okay. Um, one thing I was thinking about while Dave was talking that I uh, I was kind of made aware of or made to think about in the last two or so weeks was if um, starting from the age of 10, let's imagine you live to the age of 80. If you start reading a book a day until you're 80, you're only going to make it through 25,500 books. Now that seems like a lot, but considering the millions of books that are available in this world, right? And even in philosophy alone, you could find 25,000 worthwhile books. Or in, if you really care about literature, you could find 25,000 worthwhile books, be it primary or secondary criticism of the literature. You could do it. Um, and that's reading a book a day once. Um, so just totally impossible, right? Um, and to me, that's overwhelming, but also relieving to know that I'm not fully capable of, of ever understanding everything that's ever been printed. Um, the thing we kind of talked about in our live stream last weekend, I'm going to go on the assumption that everybody watched that. If you haven't, um, we can address that maybe in the forum um, or any questions you have, but I don't want to also just spend a bunch of time saying stuff that's already been said. Um, mm -hmm. 
But one thing we talked about was this idea of reading, writing, conversation, and, and their connection to thinking. I had a professor as an undergraduate. He was a poetry professor. He started every class. He said, the syllabus for this class is the syllabus for life, reading, writing, and conversation. And he kind of repeated that over and over. And it just stuck for me. And I didn't know why it stuck at the time, but the, you know, the longer I've sat with it, the more I do, I realize those are, those are just modes of thinking, really, at the end of the day. Um, I think we're always in danger of those of us who love spending a lot of time sitting with books, um, reading them three times, thinking that that is important, um, which it is, of making that the only thing um, that we really do, or putting that as sort of like completing books is the mission, right? That that point I started on that like, oh, the mission would be to read, well, if I can read 25,000 books in my life, I should. Um, and that's the distraction. That's kind of the danger I always find myself in, which is this distraction of, I have to kind of check all of these really important books off my list as fast as I possibly can. Um, I'm reminded of one of my, my favorite novels. Um, it's a novel I teach to like 14 to 16 years old, 16 year olds, which is Fahrenheit 451. Um, if you're not familiar with that book, brief overview, um, future dystopian world, books are illegal. If you're caught with them, your house is burned down and you're disappeared kind of thing. Uh, the protagonist is a firefighter. He's on that squad and he kind of wakes up to the situation and he realizes, why aren't, why don't we read books? Why didn't they matter? And he starts to ask this question and he starts stealing and stashing away books um, only to kind of end up on the run. But he realizes he's all alone with these books is like, I need a teacher, right? Like I need somebody to teach me how to read them. I'm getting the words, but I have no idea what's going on here. I'm incapable of actually thinking about them. And he remembers a moment in the park where he'd run into a former now disgraced professor who's kind of on the hideout. Um, and they had talked and he goes and seeks out Faber. And he's like, Faber, how do I read these books? What's in them that I need to know? Why are they being burned? And Faber as wise as he is, says, the books are very important, but the, the bigger thing is the ideas they contain. And to me, that's hugely important, um, is really working through the ideas that they contain, not so much so that I can check off the book off, off the list and I'm somehow going to have a secret to the universe, but because I'm expanding sort of my conceptual universe as I go. And to Dave's point, taking the time to understand the conceptual universe of every author or philosopher we encounter on their own terms before then incorporating it into our own really makes all the difference, at least for me. Um, because I'm quick, you know, I'm quick to just find those things that agree with my, my biases. I like them and then I roll with it. And I, I mean, we're all quick to do this. And and then I just cherry pick, right? It's, it's an easy thing to do and it's natural. But if I hold myself back and kind of set the principle for myself, I'm going to, I'm going to read this and I'm going to understand it on this writer's terms so that then I can determine whether or not it's useful down the road and kind of suspend that um, is a really valuable task. And that's something we're really going to try and do um, with Jasper's Jasper's. We determined we don't actually know how to pronounce his name. Um, and we probably are <laughs> pronouncing it wrong no matter what. Um, I don't think it ultimately matters. I think it's the Nietzsche Nietzsche problem. It doesn't really matter. Um, 
but that is the goal is less to because i my instinct is i have this series of texts that i'm reading that are sort of critique of institutions and critique of school in, in particular um, and the institutions that shape us as humans within this society we live in um, but I have to hold myself back from that and know that that can come later if this text is important enough to speak into that. Um, but if I rush into it, uh, I'll either misread it or miss an important idea that is actually helpful because I was going too quickly. And, um, and so that's gonna kind of be the goal of this next six, six meetings is to really go through each chapter and do a close read of what's in the chapter. And then at the end in those projects, that's where the expansion, the first expansion can really start to happen. Having then done first done the close read, we can um, expand beyond that then. So, and I'll pass it off to him. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm assuming that I have some screen sharing capabilities and we're going to um, kind of review the syllabus, not because we want to be authoritarian. Oh, Dave has something to say. Well, I'm just wondering if, if there's a way that we can amplify your voice a little bit. I think you're quieter than, than Brian was. Okay. Um, I haven't done anything different than the last Zoom call, but I can... You know, Brian wasn't quiet to me when you said he was quiet. I don't know if like when I first did the Zoom call, you you were like blaring. And so there's a audio setting that you can like is an individual can go in and change to like amplify Zoom voices. You're right. You're right. No, I just so, I just looked up I just looked on voice meter and it was like turned down on my end. Okay. Uh, you sound great. I'm so sorry. Okay, cool. No, that's okay. That's okay. Anyways, syllabus. Not because we're, you know, trying to follow some like authoritarian model here of like a normal university classroom, but it is useful to have kind of a structure, an idea of what we're doing, why we're doing it, where we're going, and thinking about the course as a whole right now. Um, screen sharing is disabled for me, by the way. Does anyone know how I can, Cadell, how do I enable it? Do you know off the top of your head? Yeah, you should You should be able to go to the screen share button um, at the bottom of the panel and you should be able to enable multiple users. Okay, got it. Okay, I think it says all participants now. Okay, yeah. All righty. I guess we will. I'm gonna read uh, the chat while you did that. Cool. And I will get that pulled up. Okay, can everyone see the syllabus? Yeah. Cool. So uh, as we know kind of the goal of this course is to read the book with us from cover to cover. Dave also has audio, has recorded an audio version of the book, which is available on, I believe, YouTube and like any podcasting platform. So kind of with this idea of reading and rereading, it might even be useful to, you know, you've probably already done the initial reading or maybe you do the initial reading um, 
towards the beginning of the week and then maybe like the day or two before if you want to refresh and listen to the book or vice versa that is definitely a useful um, resource for us all but this uh, just kind of has where what you can find within our syllabus and so I think everyone in this group has been able to log on to Theory Underground, enroll in the course. I'm assuming that's why you're all here. So Dave is always the person to go to if you have questions or concerns about the website, but everything is there. I don't know if you've all explored the website, but when you click on the course and you say like start course, it has a whole rundown of the course, like post your introduction, post your reflection, and you can actually check off the tasks that you've done and it shows you the progress that you've made throughout the course so i would recommend kind of perusing the website a little bit if you haven't already uh, this is going to be our schedule for the week we've broken everything up into this week will be kind of the introduction to not only the book but this course kind of as we've been doing then next week we're going to do all of part one then we'll be divided into part two in weeks three and four, and then part three of the book, chapters seven, eight, and nine. Um, this book is relatively short. So yeah, next week might be the longest week as far as how much reading there is. But even if the chapters are shorter, that doesn't mean we can't have you know a long, lively conversation. And so that's just what our schedule looks like if you need reference to what to read. The weekly assignments, um, like we've talked about, you know, we obviously don't want you just to have a bunch of busy work, um, but we think that, you know, posting a weekly reflection, whatever you're able to post that week is really important. I think a lot of people have already kind of posted a little reflection on the introduction and they all have looked really good. And so that can just be done on the forum, uh, on the discussion tab, and you can just start your own discussion, maybe put, you know, your name or your last name or kind of label what it is. And here are kind of your options for what you can write about in your reflection. You can summarize the reading with quotes uh, to support your interpretation. Um, you can, you know, write about a passage or an idea that you struggled with or that you found interesting, um, maybe that you want some clarification on. You could also come up with some like questions that you might want to discuss during the lectures. You can ask a question about or, you know, offer encouragement on someone else's post, respond to some people. Um, and then you can choose a couple pages to summarize and ask critical questions about. It's really up to you what you want to do any given week. Um, but we think that, you know, engaging on the forum outside of this because we're all here because we want to, I think that will be a really lively place as opposed to like a university forum where everyone's required to write some response and they're all superficial and shallow. So I think this will be really refreshing for those of us who've experienced kind of the weekly reflection at our university. Um, if you're interested in reading kind of our reasoning for why this is important, it's all in the syllabus here. And finally, we have some information about the final assignment that is again encouraged, not um, required. We know that, you know, we've got work and, and family and busy lives. And so if you want to kind of continue that next step of the learning process, which is writing, uh, this final assignment is a really great opportunity to do that and have kind of your peers here look at that. Um, and so Dave talks about how in this, that there might be an opportunity if you 
potentially want something about the idea of the university published um, by the theory underground for maybe some collection of works or something, there is an opportunity, uh, kind of more information in here if you're, if you're interested. And so this just kind of has some options that could be accepted for publication, mostly some sort of essay, some sort of writing, um, but anything that you're inspired to do, obviously a video essay or a like mini podcast, a reflection, a book review, anything that you're, that excites you, that you wanna reflect on can be done, but obviously we can't necessarily publish any of these things into like a book or anything. And so this just has some more information again, why you might want to do this, but it's not required. And then of course we have some resources down here at the bottom where the PDF is, where all of the audiobooks are, the audiobook recordings and the podcast. And then if you ever are having trouble getting to the Zoom link or the forum link, um, if you save this syllabus down here, Dave has put the links for everything. So if you're having trouble navigating the website, you can just get to it from the bottom of this syllabus. But this is here just as kind of a structure for the class. And with that, we can move on. Great, thank you. This would be a good time for anybody who has um, thoughts on any of the three talks so far to contribute, just introduce yourself to whatever degree you feel comfortable introducing yourself in the public on the internet when you start. And uh, if you just want to sit in the back and keep thinking, you can always add to the forum later. But the last thing I would say before turning it over is um, I do love the hand raising function on Zoom. And so you can raise your hand and we'll just go in order of the order that people raise their hands. And uh, the one thing that's good to mention, though, is that uh, if you if if you get called on because you raised your hand and then you talk and it Zoom is not at the point yet where it automatically turns off the raised hand afterwards. And so you have to yourself after you're done saying, you know, talking, then you have to lower your hand. Sorry, it's just the way it is for now. With with being the richest, no one made out better than Zoom during COVID and they couldn't pay a programmer to do that. Come on, come on. All right, but yeah, let's go. I guess it's over. See you later, everybody. Bye. All right, hello, everybody. There we Can you all hear me? All right, cool. So yeah, so most of y'all know me, but for those of you, those of you who don't, um, I'm Andrew. Uh, I also go by uh, Master Signified Bodies on uh, YouTube IG. Um, like I put in the introduction and uh, reflection that uh, I don't have any university uh, experience or any uh, form of higher education besides, um, you know, a high school diploma. Although I did just recently get my associates uh, from doing some online classes while being in the Navy. Um, I met Dave uh, while doing some like IG lectures, like as he said, uh, I was doing sort of uh, what you call it, like second second reading, like exegesis. Exegesis, um, yeah. Yeah, on uh, look some Lacan seminars, and then that's how I met him. And so yeah, I'm here. Um, I'm really excited about this format. Um, this is something that's like definitely, you know, I don't know if anybody else is doing this besides maybe like uh, I was listening to the Cadell interview with you guys um 
you know, the, the, the philosophy portal, I don't know if it's doing something like that, but this is, this is dope. Um, there's, like you said, it's not totally authoritative, but I think the syllabus allows for some sort of structure. And the main thing, it's mostly, like you said, uh, the three things that uh, we have to take seriously are uh, reading, uh, writing, and conversation. And it's not like, oh, you have like, you know, five pages of reading, then you got to do a summary, and then you got uh, an exam the next morning, and like none of this stuff. It's more of like focusing on getting the dialogue with the text, uh, going back and rereading, uh, retracing your steps and understanding maybe the ideas in a different outlook and actually engaging with the dialogue with the, not only the text, but even with your peers and not just being like, oh, well, he says idea like this. Uh, is this the same way that uh, Plato talks about an idea or Hegel talks it about an idea? No, right? Not trying to uh, constantly regurgitate what other thinkers say or automatically impose your presuppositions onto the text and sort of, you know, get into the habit of just doing what you're usually used to doing, which is not thinking, which is not learning. It's, you know, it, there's no open-mindedness to it. There's no engagement with, with any of it. You know, again, to, to kind of beat a dead horse, there's no um, rigorous dialogue. And I think this is probably a good opportunity for that because again, the main thing is reading it, uh, discussing it and writing it. And that's the main thing. And I think it all boils down to this reflection with a capital R. I mean, that's all I have. Let's go, Cadell. I was just clapping, but I will go. <laughs> I will go. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> Oops. Um, there's a because there's there's a bunch of reactions you can do. Uh, we can get a we can get we can get virtually emotive here. Okay. So, uh, yeah, my name is Cadell Last. Um, I um, have only recently become aware of of theory underground, but I've been following in terms of. Uh, like an academic presence, but I've been following them on uh, social media and the theorygram for for a while, and, and appreciate their uh, their expression in this space. And as soon as I found out that Dave was doing a, a course on the idea of the university, I, I jumped on it because it's something close to my heart. And um, I guess, long story short, um, I feel like I've you know, been in academia, I've gone through academia, I finished my doctorate, but at the same time, I felt like at every stage, the constraints on the possibility of exploring what was true to me got smaller and smaller to the point where, you know, I, I couldn't make any more compromises, I suppose. And, um, but as I talked about with Dave in our talk, you know, when someone, when someone who's a truth seeker, let's say, drops out of, of the, the universities, um, it's got to go underground because the ideas can't die. So, so, so I'm here with Theory Underground and that makes sense. And um, I guess the only thing that's important to know about me is that right now the main thing I'm doing is my work with Philosophy Portal. Um, and uh, that is basically a space that I've tried to carve. Yep. I just wanted to encourage you to actually talk about a little bit about the stuff that you talked about in your introduction post. You, this is a great place to do oh, it sure. it'll fit better oh, sure. this week than in another week yeah go for it 
Okay, so my introduction post was basically, again, I'll try to do long story short, but <clears throat> uh, my, my original passion was athletics. I dedicated myself in high school to that and uh, actually failed high school so that I could repeat an extra year of high school to play more sports and also rethink my, you know, at the time sort of realized, okay, I'm not going to uh, become a pro athlete. So I've got to rethink my identity. And I went to a community college in a general arts and science program, which sort of gave me an exposure to many different disciplines. And I just totally nerded out like the same energy that I went in with sports. I just, I just transferred that right on to like nerding out on various subjects and just, you know, fell in love with anthropology, did an undergrad in anthropology, um, kind of became, um, I, I kind of went into like a social withdrawal in high school. I was very social. And then in university, I was kind of very isolated. Um, did a bunch of independent studies, was interested in evolution, human evolution specifically. Um, did my master's, but then the constraints got really tight. Um, and I had to do these hyper specialized topics where, you know, I had to get into this university and then I ended up, be, you know, because of, you know, my supervisor, I had to study lemurs. I didn't care about lemurs. Um, you know, so I'm just like, why am I doing this? Like, you know, somehow I've, I've stumbled down this hole where I'm studying lemurs. What am I doing? You know, <laughs> this type of thing. And I was like, I'm, so I'm like, like, I'm out of here. Uh, so I took a year off. I started a blog called The Advanced Apes, which was about um, evolution and the future, uh, which was what I had become passionate about. And through, you know, interest, whenever, whenever something fails, and this is actually a Hegelian point, but whenever something fails, always something new, interesting pops up that I couldn't have anticipated. And uh, I had the opportunity to do a doctorate at like a, this futurist in, uh, think tank. And I had four years to write about the future, basically. So I wrote, I wrote a doctorate called Global Brain Singularity, and uh, that's, that's online. Um, but because I was so disconnected from, I was so concerned about writing the thesis and so disconnected from professionally positioning myself after I finished the doctorate to like get a job or like get a professor position somewhere, or like get a postdoc somewhere. Um, you know, there was no real bridge there. And so what I've been doing since finishing my doctorate is, you know, jumping around part-time job to part-time job, but also building some online uh, educational stuff which has become philosophy portal. So that's, uh, that's me in a nutshell. Thank you. I just, I, I really liked uh, your introduction post and thought it was important to bring up here because uh, you're not the only person here who came to theory later after having gotten really into something else. And and in a lot of cases, I think people tried to get people got really into something and then for the reasons that they burnt out on that got into theory, trying to understand what had happened, you know. And so if anybody else wants to tie in their kind of story when it comes to that, getting into philosophy and theory, you're definitely well, this is definitely the place and time to do it now, as opposed to next week. Uh, I, I did Amen or, or Anne raise hand first. I did not see. Anne was first. I think I did. I just really, like really quickly wanted to kind of point out the fact that, to my knowledge, I think our split of like people who have 
been to the university and had a formal education through the university and not is kind of even. And I just think that that is really awesome that we're all here because we're talking about obviously the idea of the university. And so those of us who have experienced it firsthand versus those of us who have not and either have our critiques or reasons why we want to understand like why it might be worth it. Like I'm so excited because these two worlds don't normally collide. I think normally the discourse is, oh, if you don't go to university, you don't care about education, you're just, you know, working, you had other priorities. And then sometimes the narrative, I think there can be a lot of like hostility of people who, I mean, I'm like, who family members maybe who haven't gone to the university have towards those of us who did. And so I'm so happy that we have this group here together. And I just like want to encourage everyone to share their experiences and opinions. Um, and talk about it, not just like not think that oh, those who went to the university have some upper hand in this conversation. Like, absolutely not. We're we're taking all of our assumptions and we're tearing them down and we're starting from the bottom. And so, I just want to say I really appreciate that and everyone being here. Go swole. <laughs> Uh, okay, I am uh, Eamon, aka Stephen. That's my middle name. I go by uh, in some circles, and aka the Swoletariat, aka Swall. Um, yeah, I uh, I have a degree in politics from uh, from university, and um, I just remember distinctly going into university and even leaving university, kind of with with no practical road in mind like I, I had no guidance on how to how to turn my education into um something practical i i was just there to learn and i remember distinctly like all my friends everyone else i was hanging out with they're all like in business or geography or, or computer science or whatever um and they didn't seem to care about learning or anything and that was what like that was what i was all about um and I just didn't have the plan. So I really like, I always enjoyed um, the idea of the university, but I could, I could see how, how it was distorted by this like practical kind of application for, you know, the uses for the state, for the worker, for the, for the, you know, for the capitalist class. Um, but uh, yeah, so then, so uh, when Dave's videos came out, you know, they were all quite interesting to me and, and spoke to me for sure because that's how I thought of the university kind of anyway. Um, and right, you know, now as a, oh, I should mention that I am a, I'm an Orthodox uh, Marxist. Uh, I'm a Trotskyist in a in the IMT International Marxist Tendency. So there, a lot of our learning process, you know, we're a democratic central centralist organization. So uh, the the way we learn is. A little bit fluid, but mostly kind of top down and mostly like, you know, these are the books. These are the ones that are important. You're going to read them. If you want to read other stuff on your own time, okay, but make sure, you know, these are the, these are the main ones. Um, and it's not really about critically engaging with them so much as it is like, you know, learning from the, the, the holy text a little bit. So uh, it's nice to be in this environment where uh, we can uh, do something a little bit different. Um, and, and, you know, not for specifically the purpose of like, you know, uh, revolution and organizing the working class, but more of a, 
uh, a free thinking uh, and creative uh, setting. All right, so we've got some fantastic introductions in the forum. I really do recommend that everybody take the time to go over those, check them out, listen to them. You get 20 minutes free every day on natural readers, which is what I use to listen to things. And so you can just copy some of these introduction posts, paste them into natural readers and listen while you're washing the dishes or something like that. You don't have to sit there and try to focus on a screen, you know, you can free up from that. And then, but give people some encouragement, respond to people in there because like Anne said, the forum here, because it's not required, we're hoping people will make more use of it. But I also was thinking one of the issues, I actually got a lot out of a forum in an ethics class that I took. Uh, with the required respond to other people and everything like that. And sure, I got some some lousy interactions, but there are also really quality ones. The issue, though, and what makes hopefully what we're doing different not beyond the requirement part is that I can't go back to those conversations now. Where is that discourse that I was supposedly initiated into? What about if those people two years later are thinking about something that I said at the time of the course and they want to come back in two years and say something something new that they've thought about, that they've learned, something that they've read, they've changed their mind, or they want me to consider something that I've never thought about. That bridge is burnt. The person who didn't speak up, the person who didn't like try to keep in contact with me, it's over. I was telling Anne, imagine if at the university, you take a class, now you're in the forum, with everybody who's ever taken that class with that professor, okay? In every class of 25, there's usually two students who are the most serious. And they're not necessarily the ones who sit up front and try to play teacher's favorite. They're usually, they're usually kind of nondescript students, right? You don't, you don't realize how serious they are unless you get a chance to like review their final project and it puts you to shame. You're like, oh my God, like, whoa, I thought this person was distracted the whole time. They were actually paying super attention. Well, those two students out of 25 on average, every semester over the years would add up. After 10 years, that's 20 of the best and most serious committed people to that topic, to that conversation. And so anyway, that's my goal. I hope that uh, everyone will read everyone else's introductions in there. I think it is time now to get into the reflections. And we only have three pages from the book that we really have to reflect upon. So I'm wondering who wants to take a crack at doing the, this is what happened in this week's reading. Because I can always just sit here and go over my reflection and talk about that. But I'd like someone to take a crack at it before I do. Mikey, you look like the guy from God of War. It's terrifying. Just wanted you to know that you you look badass. <laughs> Thanks, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Next next week we're hold gonna on, delegate. Hold on. Wait, hold on. Uh, do I still look as badass? 
uh, whole. Yes. Yeah, you got to you got to do the you got to do the pinky. Funny thing is, I literally made a meme with uh, of Mike. Yeah, there you go. Now you're, now you're badass. Now you're. Okay, I I actually screen capped that, so we've got that forever. Nice. All right, Brian. Here, what happened? Screen cap this. Do you actually want me to screen cap this? No. Okay. What happened? Well, here's the plot. No. Um, I mean, this is a very, very 10,000 foot overview of everything to come. I think he's laying down some of the bigger themes he's going to get into, which are, uh, I've noted a few that I think are worthwhile discussing, um, including academic freedom as a core idea to the university. Um, this idea of the commitment of the whole man or the whole person, um, the university and truth seeking as a human right, um, the balance between the pursuit of truth and institutional state mandate. And last, what was it? Um, man's fundamental nature as a truth seeker. I think all of those are pretty core things coming up variously throughout this very brief introduction. He's not giving us a lot. And I think that's a great place to start is to dig into each one of those. Um, but I'm sure others who have, uh, would have more to add to because I haven't captured everything. Or do we want to just get into it? Well, everybody has their reflections probably ready to hand. They'll be able to pull those up. Folks, if you've done your reflection already, it was due last night. You're not going to get punished if you didn't get it done before today. Like you can always do it after the fact. The only reason it's technically due is so that if I wake up at 5 a.m., I have time to do all the things that I do and review the reflections. I want to be able to review reflections before going. And today, I read most of Eamon's reflection, part of Cadell's reflection, um, and I think I've read everybody else's reflection so far, including Andrew's. And so, or Andrew, did you did you do? No, maybe you didn't do your reflection. You did an introduction, right? Okay, yeah, I think I just did the introduction, not the reflection. I want to say uh, Nance's reflection was an entertaining read, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> I almost want you to just read it aloud, you know, and in a sort of sense, these are, look, I don't know how to go about this. I want, I want people to go with what feels right to them. I, I don't know if I should actually read my entire thing. So Brian, just say what you want to say. And I think people can like, look at their reflections and decide if they want to read a part of their reflection, try to think about that in the next few minutes, everybody, if you are willing to read a part of your reflection then you are also encouraged to do so and welcome to do so. Okay. Um, well, I came less prepared to say and more prepared to ask um, and listen to you all say, I mean, I definitely want to be a part of the conversation, but um, mm -hmm. I do want to start on that question of academic freedom because in the second paragraph of the introduction, um, we're already there. Now I need to re reopen it. Um, no, in the first paragraph, like the church, the university derives its autonomy, respected even by the state, 
from an imperishable idea of the supranational worldwide character, academic freedom. And I would like to start with what is our working definition going forward of this academic freedom? Um, I know, Eamon, you started kind of talking about other organizations you're part of where maybe that's not the goal, right? And so how is the university going to be distinct um, or how do those goals differ because of different priorities? And this is a question to all. Actually, and the, the, I hadn't thought about asking questions up front. We also have the, the sort of leading questions that the three instructors brought up in there. And so I think that we'll definitely, the three of us have to bring up those questions in a bit here too. So, but can you restate this question, Brian? Starting point, uh, what's a good definition of academic freedom? Because it, it seems obvious, but um, I'm sure once we start untangling, it's actually less clear. Well, no one's raised their hands yet, so I'm just going to jump in here. At first, I was reading that as freedom of speech because that's the way it gets talked about today. And then I think that that is not what he's saying because I was thinking about later on, he actually says that it's not about just being able to say whatever you want right? He's on the one side saying people should be able to say whatever they want, but then he also says, look, but that's a crazy expectation. There's also a limit to that, and there's always going to be a struggle over it. And so there's a whole section where he problematizes the idea of just unbridled freedom of speech. He actually says that professors don't just have freedom of speech. They have a heavy responsibility to speak truth, which does not mean that they can just say whatever the fuck they want, right? So what does he mean by academic freedom then? I take it to mean autonomy of guiding and directing your research towards the things that are interesting to you, the problems that are interesting to you, working through the questions that are interesting to you, having the freedom to pursue your, your intellectual interests. That's what I take it to be. Does that make sense to everyone else? And do you think that that is also what he's getting at? Yeah, and before Anne goes, um, I just... And I'd ask you to maybe, since it came up in the live stream, connect this to um, Dr. Yenner, because I think that's an, a great case of the way we socially perceive academic freedom or um, abuse it. And maybe a little explanation as to who he is, because most people didn't go to yeah. Boise State. Yeah, um, I guess I wanted to kind of start by pointing directly back to the text, because in this first paragraph, he brings up academic freedom. And then Jasper says, academic freedom is a privilege which entails the obligation to teach truth in defiance of anyone outside or inside the university who wishes to curtail it. And so I think that this obligation to teach truth, this obligation, I think, for us as students and learners and as professors, and then just the institution as a whole, I think, has a responsibility if they believe in the idea of the university to allow all ideas to be talked about and not shut down because it's harmful to my identity because I don't agree with it. It, it needs to be, you know, an intellectual safe space in the sense that it needs to be a space for us to work out the nuances of all ideas. And if we're not 
being presented with all sides, if we're not having the opportunity to really talk about these things with all of the time and commitment that it, it takes and just brushing through things, then that's not, you know, academically or that doesn't have the same academic integrity that I think Jasper's is advocating for. And so also kind of along with what Dave had talked about this um, freedom as being kind of the freedom for autonomy and intellectual autonomy. It's, you know, being able to, to pursue what you want in the university, not in this way that it kind of currently is where students go, I don't want to have to take philosophy and I don't want to have to take these arts classes. If I'm just a math major, if I'm just a business major, I just want to, you know, do what, what's relevant to my major and move on with my life and not have to think about anything else. And I don't think that's not what I mean when I say like freedom to do what you want, but like the freedom to, to think bigly as we kind of referred to in our, our chat with Cadell, um, the freedom to think because in this um, introduction, Jasper's kind of drives home the point that it is our basic determination as, as human beings to, to know, to learn, to seek truth. And so if we accept that, then the freedom to do what you want in the university means the freedom to think and to pursue truth and to not be bogged down by busy work. And how does this apply? And what career are you gonna get? And, oh, let's teach you how to write resumes. It's like, go to a workshop, like someone will help you. That shouldn't be necessarily your introduction to college is, oh, we're gonna teach you how to make a lot of money and write an essay. Um, that was what I wanted to add to kind of what does this academic freedom mean, but going off of kind of what Brian suggested is um, so I have a professor, I think maybe Brian, maybe you take any Yenner courses. Um, yeah, so there's this professor at Boise State University named Scott Yenner. He's been in the news a couple times. He's been on Tucker Carlson because he's a conservative. He says conservative things like he's in, he lives in Idaho, you know, he is, in my experience, people call him sexist. They say he shouldn't be teaching there. They say he's transphobic and killing trans people because of his opinions on um, hormone blockers. He was the best professor I had at Boise State University, hands down. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if he's read the idea of the university, but he takes that very seriously in all I'm going to make you do is read some books, read some big brain books and write some, some papers. And he gave this like incredible feedback. He would voice record his responses to your essay and just send you the voice recording. Um, students thought that this was the most difficult class they've ever taken just because we had to read um, Russian literature and Aristotle, you know, like important, important texts. And I guess one thing I will say about kind of this academic freedom and maybe, I don't know, Brian, what you were getting at with, you know, bringing up Yenner, but something that I think like doesn't necessarily mean academic freedom is this professor said, okay, this course, it's going to be, um, what was the course called? Like political thought or something like that. It was like a 300 level political science slash philosophy class. And we were supposed to read Hegel and Marx and like really big thinkers. And I was so excited. I thought, okay, he is gonna 
know his stuff. This is going to be a great class. And I get to the class and he goes, actually, I'm going to be teaching political thought through Russian literature and changed the entire course on us, like without our knowledge. So I still took the course and got a lot out of it. But so when we talk about like academic freedom in that sense, that was kind of, I don't know, maybe like an abuse of it almost, like doing what he <laughs> wanted to do as a professor and not like honoring like these important texts. He's like, oh, we're gonna talk about Hegel, I promise. We didn't talk about Hegel. Thing with the academic freedom that I think is important to talk about in relation to this Jenner uh, guy is so he does research, he, he publishes books and articles and goes to conferences outside of the course, the political science and philosophy courses that he teaches. And yeah, like I said, he says conservative things and he talks about kind of family values. And in the idea of the university, under that idea, he is allowed to do that and exist and do his research within the university as a respected professor. And he's literally being shut down and silenced for it. And like, we all might not agree with what he says, but that is obviously not like fair to him and, and his academic freedom to pursue the ideas that he wants to pursue. And so that's kind of an interesting like case study of a professor that I've experienced. Um, but yeah, I guess. Eamon had his hand up and you can go from there. You're muted. Yeah, um, so I, I was just thinking about how funny it is, like how people pick up on different different parts of the text and focus on them. I read, I read the text three times. Uh, I didn't know that the phrase academic freedom was even in there, if you had asked me. Uh, I mean, I missed that completely. <laughs> that's not what I focused on. But when I was thinking of, uh, when, you know, Dave was talking about it, yeah, that's that would be the way, uh, you know, I'm in complete agreement of, of, of thinking about it um, in that sense. Um, because that, you know, to me, that's the way Jasper described it is the same way Marx really described it. Um, in that, uh, you know, like freedom for Marx is the freedom to self-direct labor, basically, to do whatever you labor on, whatever things you want to do, rather than laboring for the reproduction of yourself or, you know, for the for someone's benefit, someone else's benefit. So, uh, yeah, that's that's all I want to say there. Um, yeah, and the follow up as well, like what I was thinking about as Dave and Ann talk, you know, we kind of get this definition from him, this obligation to um, to teach truth, though we should also probably say he would say pursue truth as well. Um, the freedom part is the like the freedom to get that wrong, right? I think like, because we can never know for certain, you know, certain absolute truths are beyond our ability to comprehend fully. And so we only get pieces and parts of this puzzle and we're gonna fuck it up. Um, and so I think that's a huge part of the freedom element of academic freedom. But what I was also thinking about in relation to sort of controversial figures in the academy um, is, you know, we're not often very quick to distinguish between academic freedom and political freedom, which are two, I think, very different things, um, right? You can, because like, 
a professor, you can go into the public sphere and, you know, and maybe you believe that women shouldn't have the right to vote. Let's go with something that, you know, and have that very strongly held belief. And that's politically protected speech to a certain extent, but you can't go into the classroom respecting academic freedom and say, women don't have a right to be here and I refuse to teach them. Right, because the obligation to teach and pursue truth also respects the obligation of all individuals to do the same within the university. Um, and so I think that's where Yanner probably shines is he can, he's able to take those, what we would say pretty disgusting political views and hold them in suspense when he's at the university, right? And I think that's why, because you're not the only one who said that about him. I've heard it from Dave and others who have taken his classes over the years. I never, I never did, but the great professor, right? Um, just don't watch him on Fox News, um, that kind of thing, yeah. right? And the, the I things mean, are I very give a quick example of that, like people were saying, oh, he's so sexist. He treats his female students so differently. And in my case, not only like at the end of the course, he had us do like a one-on-one 10-minute -on -one, uh, like oral exam. And at the end, he said, Miss Melgrove, I know that our political beliefs don't align. And I really appreciated your perspective in the class. And I wish you spoke up more. And I wish you the best. So he's like, obviously able to keep those. You know, he had said like, oh, women, like women shouldn't be in certain fields. Like he basically said something like that, but then keep that so distinct from the classroom. And so, yeah, I just wanted to kind of make that clear of like what, what he actually did. To clarify, he had said that not in the classroom. He had said that elsewhere. Okay. Okay. At a very conservative conference that was unrelated to the classroom. Uh, oh, crap. I had a thought that was going to, I was going to finish. Ultimately, I think questions like that, those heavily politically controversial questions, um, you know, when it comes to the university, when, when we're talking about this obligation to truth, even though he might be getting it wrong, like his fidelity, I would assume I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt or anyone in that position would be, you know, if you if you're really investigating the sort of metaphysical implications of what it is to be a man versus a woman is very different than asserting basic political beliefs. And so that's the investigation that's like underlying it all. And we we need the academic freedom element is that that conversation must be had without recourse to you're going to be fired because you landed on the wrong side of the debate or you're going to be put on academic leave or your papers are no longer allowed to be published but respecting that just because you landed there doesn't mean it's accurate or true that kind of thing and i think that's for me where the academic freedom I think it might be getting ahead of ourselves, but in, I think, chapter one, there's another interesting example that reminds me of, of what you guys are talking about, where he differentiates between the meaning of the truth in the natural sciences versus what he calls the theological sciences. So, you know, he, he, he does sort of say explicitly that um, although the theological sciences proceed differently than the natural sciences, that there should be a space for the exploration of the, theor the theological sciences. However, I'd imagine there would be a problem if one of the two of those sciences sort of asserted a sort of political premise and prevented the other one from carrying out their work on the premises that they needed to, for example. So again, that, that distinction between academic freedom and political freedom might be relevant. 
right? What do you do when one's when when uh, one field says not only is there not such a thing as human nature, but to start questioning what human nature is is itself an an inherently essentialist, racist, reactionary thing to do, right? You we've got to study theories of human nature from every one of the greatest thinkers who's contributed to the development of society period right but but especially across cultures across civilizations across different time periods you're going to read people like aristotle who thought you know some people are just naturally slaves right yeah okay well if you if you're going to write aristotle off for that though you're only doing yourself a disservice right everyone else who keeps reading aristotle is going to be benefiting you know you so yeah anyway i i just it's interesting when the fields start to, co to conflict like that you know and so um i don't see any hands raised so i, I what i was going to do here is read a part of my reflection and people who have parts of their reflection they want to share will be able to do so as well i'm going to screen share and for the ADHD brained among us, we will have a little uh, reprieve for, for a moment. Can you all see the meme? It reads, Cadell last, wondering why he has to study lemurs right. for years on end <laughs> when that wasn't what he was interested in, realizing he was wrong in his expectation that the higher you go in higher ed, the closer you get to truth. <laughs> Jeez. So now, yeah, the, 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 one of the one of the consequences of hanging around you guys, I'm gonna have a bunch of memes, man. <laughs> and it's the uh, the image for the people who don't have eyes on screen is of Obi Wan from Phantom Menace looking. Right, I'll take maybe, it. No, okay. it's from from uh, Attack of the Clones. Oh, Attack of the Clones. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. from one of the prequels. Which is to say, sexy Ewan, you know, or sex is uh, Ewan McGregor, you know, or whatever his name is. Um, okay, let's get to uh, my reflection. I'm just going to read it. I said, we have to think that Carl Jaspers put a lot of thought into how he begins this series. That I say, of what became chapters. I say it that way because I think these were lectures that were later turned into chapters. Okay, after reading the preface, I think that I was wrong in this reflection and that actually these were written out, not as lectures, but actually as a series of articles or essays that are dedicated to the president of Heidelberg University. Um, the president of Heidelberg University was responsible for the reconstruction of the university. I feel like this is a very important part of the book, like the most important part is the dedication itself. This is not a text that comes from a void. It comes from a historically situated person who was uh, taken out of his position at the university by the Nazis. Um, he was expelled and he wasn't gonna be able to come back to the university unless the Nazi regime was overthrown. Uh, so when Jaspers is writing this after the defeat of the Nazis. Um, it's a different time than when he writes philosophy of existence. So philosophy of existence is three lectures. 
from when he's departing from Heidelberg, which is to say, these are lecture, those are lectures that he gave um, under the most severe scrutiny. Everyone wanted him to say something. And so what he decided to do was to make his parting lectures about what he considered to be the absolute most essential things anyone could possibly hear and to put it in the most plain speak way possible because he didn't know if he would be dead tomorrow. He didn't know if the people involved, like he had no idea what would happen. And so when he stood up and gave the lectures from the book, the short book, Philosophy of Existence, um, he's under that heat. But when we read this book, it's on the other side of World War II. And now he's writing to the president of Heidelberg University, the person, he says, who is responsible for its reconstruction. Okay. It's kind of an amazing thing to be one of the most well-known, you know, sort of uh, to have the most name recognition in Germany at the time in the world of philosophy, psychiatry, and existentialism to have been expelled from the university. And now that the Nazis who expelled him are defeated and the university is being reconstructed, all eyes are on him once again. And he's taking that opportunity to say, look, I have your attention for now. You're trying to reconstruct this university. Half you motherfuckers are responsible for legitimizing the Nazis. He's not going to focus on that, though. He does write about that in his book, The Question of German Guilt. But in this work, it's pure positive critique. He wants to focus on what is the idea itself. All right. He says, no, then I say, I say, imagine feeling in charge of the reconstruction of Heidelberg University after the defeat of the Nazis in World War II. Where, where to even begin? If too much time is spent focused on the immediate administrative duties that every president has always felt, then what gets left out? The idea itself. Ideas orient us in space and time. Ideas speak to our higher capacities and give us something against which to compare and contrast the actually existing institution. So what is the idea of the university itself? The very short introduction spells it out in three pages. In short, the ideal, is for there to be a space wherein people can dedicate their lives to the pursuit of truth for its own sake. Quote, the university is a community of scholars and students engaged in the task of seeking truth. End quote. Because truth is not reducible to science alone and because no one, no one person can see or understand all things. The idea of the university is not of some ideal thinking ego isolated from the rest of the world on a quest for knowledge. Instead, it is to be a place where differing viewpoints can dialogue and clash, working through contradictions. Because of this, Jasper says the highest value at the university is that of academic freedom. Quote, academic freedom is a privilege which entails the obligation to teach truth in defiance of anyone outside or inside the university who wishes to curtail it. End quote. Why is academic freedom considered a privilege? Is it because the rest of the human population has to concern itself with instrumentalized tasks, as in jobs that focus on profit? Is the idea that a place being made for academic freedom and truth-seeking will trickle down in beneficial ways of the, uh, for the rest of us who need to focus on instrumentalized tasks? 
That is what I get from Jasper saying that, quote, state and society have an active interest in the university for it prepares its graduates for those careers in public service which require scientific ability and intellectual training, end quote. The point is that many useful ideas, tools, and strategies or ways of seeing are cooked up at the university, but that these useful goods are themselves downstream from the drive to understand for its own sake. Pure theory is prior to instrumentalized application. If this is forgotten by the administration, politicians, or broader society at large, then the question of how is this useful and constant demands to make things more applicable undermines the academic freedom and pure research that is the precondition of all the practical objectives. Jaspers is not against the university preparing people for work, but fears that the order of priority and the real point will get lost. Quote, the university is an institution with practical objectives, but it attains them by an effort of the spirit which at first transcends them only to return to them afterwards with greater clarity, strength, and calm, end quote. Final paragraph, here we go. And then I'm hoping someone else will have something to share from their reflection, and then we'll be wrapping it out in about the next uh, 25 minutes. Jaspers does not think it possible to summarize what truth is and how it is acquired, yet he thinks some of its conditions can be laid out in a provisional attempt. This is necessary because we cannot wait to settle the unsettled when considering the state of the university and the necessity of its reconstruction. For the, university con for the university's condition of possibility is a civil society and political establishment that secure for it this special status. In this sense, the condition of possibility for attaining the idea of the university comes with it inherent contradictions that obstruct the institution and its members from ever fully realizing its goals. What are those contradictions? We will find out that they are primarily politics, business, and scientism. He does not come right out and say this in the introduction, but I think this is important as it makes sense of how he sets things up. Instead of saying this is, instead of saying this, he just says that the way he will proceed is by first focusing on the nature of intellectual life in general. That's part one. Then the responsibilities inherent to realizing intellectual life in a university, that's part two. And in the final part, we will learn about the, quote, concrete conditions of the university and how these affect its functioning. So there you go. That's the three parts that we will be getting into. And uh, that's my reflection. What did I miss? Or does anyone want to comment on something? I, I would do a quick comment on, you know, I have a lot of experience with uh, instrumentalization being put over pure theory and the impossibility of, of um, sort of um, developing a career based on pure theory, because uh, to me, it's all comes down to, like you said, the politics, the economic, was it the politics, the economic and the scientism? Were those the yeah. three factors? I said yeah. politics. It's it's yeah. no no. It was uh, poli politics, business, politics, and okay, scientism. Yeah, which business could be connected to economics, of course. But um, oh, fair. Um, but like in in my experience, what always drove me up the wall was that they 
they want to know what you're going to discover in research before you actually do the research. And then, the you know, which is ridiculous, which is really anti-scientific. I mean, it almost sets itself up so that no discoveries will actually happen. Um, and then again, it's, it's constrained in such, a, such an intense way that any actual speculative cognition you have is, is, is filtered out before you start. And then my experience when I was actually there was because of this instrumentalization in terms of they want to know what it is before you actually do it, and they never actually end up checking, is that what you end up actually doing is very different from what you were uh, got the funding from in the first place. So I don't know. I guess that the thing that I would want to open up is, or just a question doesn't have to be answered now, but just in, in time is, what would it look like to align business and politics and scientism with pure theory? Because right now it's all set up in the, it's like the cart before the horse. Aiden, you've got a raised hand. Oh, you're muted, by the way. You're still muted, Aiden. Can you unmute him, uh, Dave? Let me try. I can ask to unmute. Okay, I clicked it. There we go. Sorry, I was trying to figure out how to do that. Welcome. But uh, yeah, how's it going? All right. Um, just in response to uh to that question, I think if business, politics, and scientism aligned with peer theory, it'd be closer to more more collective organization of society. Um it wouldn't be in a direct relation to like profit and um, what you could produce. It'd be more what you could find out. Kind of along those lines. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, the question of collective organization will probably be one of the ones that we'll keep coming back to here, especially since we've got Swole in the chat. Who's up next, by the way? Go for it. Yeah, I just basically the same thing. Uh, the the uh, you know scientism, uh, business, and what was the third one? Business, politics. politics. Yeah. Politics. Yeah, I mean, the, the the my answer would be like you know obviously you just in order to get things out of the, these things out of the way um, in, for the university you would need a socialist society. You'd need a revolution. Like that doesn't, that doesn't mean that these things would, would go away immediately, but that they would, the necessary precondition for these things, uh, not no longer interfering in, um, you know, the pursuit, pursuit of truth would be, um, the social, uh, the socialist revolution. One thing that I would like to task you with, well, of course, I can't assign you your final project, but to consider writing a piece about um, from the main currents of Marxism, volumes one through three by Leszcz Kulakowski, it, it's basically like the most masterful takedown of Marxisms that you'll ever read uh, by a by a person who was a, a big time Stalinist up until he quit uh is to read the section on 
the Stalinization of the university scene in Soviet Russia, specifically how he goes through how department after department after department get shut down and all the professors are getting laid off or fired because they're not historical dialectical materialist enough. And so you have all these people trying to tie every branch of knowledge back to historical and dialectical materialism. And all of a sudden, every field became instrumentalized in the sense of how does this field contribute to or prove Stalin correct? And so with that being the reputation of socialized education in one of the biggest, most important revolutions in the last 150 years time, I mean, really, there's only a couple of examples where it's been this widespread and successful. Um, the question would be, how do you keep that from occurring, right? How do you, because if, if on the one side, business interests are contradicting the freedom of academic research, well, on the other side, it's politics. And so if you use politics to socialize and centralize everything, you can get rid of the business interest, but have you just given the political interest so much power that it's just going to be worse? You know what I mean? So, and I'm not saying it, it would be worse, but I am saying that I would love more than anything to read from an actual Orthodox Trotskyist, someone who, yeah, a, a piece that engages with Kolokowski's piece. It's really probably like 20 pages from those three volumes that you would have to read and actually kind of tie this to, and you could use it as a critique of Stalinism, or you could critique Kolakowski for missing the point or whatever. I, I just, I think that that something along those lines would be fascinating. So. Not a bad idea. Anne has raised her hand. Cool. Yeah. I actually wanted to, you know, as we're maybe beginning to wind down, I wanted to turn it back to Brian and the questions that you prepared, if that's okay. Um, like maybe if there's anything, Ryan, that you saw that you want to like finish out on or any questions you want to raise before we kind of head into the next week, um, since I know you came prepared with some. Great idea. Yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, I have a few. We're definitely not going to get to them all. Like I promised, I'll post them just in this week's discussion forward after this conversation as optional for anyone who wants to engage them, um, either internally in your head or in written form, just so you can see them. I guess the one that matters the most to me, Cadell, you already brought up as well, um, is this sort of whole man, where did the question go, uh, approach, this belief in the third page of the introduction um, that it requires um, the whole man, the whole person. So what does he mean by the whole person. Okay, can we get a little more clarity on that? Um, and why can't it actually just be a matter of intellectual truth, truth seeking segmented off from the rest of one's life? Um, and the bigger question is how does the university provide for this or how could it provide for this or fail to? If you'd like me to rephrase, I will.
Yeah, you're saying, Brian, that, that stuck out to me as well, that this relationship between the whole and the specialist. Um, I mean, for, for me and my experience of university with just the hyper-specialization is that you just find yourself in ridiculous situations where there are these people who know everything about such a tiny part of existence and they have no way to relate it back to anything. And they just don't even know why they're doing it in the end. You know, like they know like a lot about gluons. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I mean, I guess the big thing maybe underlying the question that helps me kind of clarify is what's the relationship between to really simplify it specialists and generalists? Because you could easily find specialists who then say, well, yeah, but that's our job is to be hyper specialized in advanced knowledge in this one area so that then someone else can come around, hoover it up and create a new universe with all the various specialized new knowledge. But nobody could do all of that on their own. And so yeah, what's I the guess. bigger relationship and how do we how do we play yeah. that out? Mikey, do you want to ask that answer that? Uh, I you know what? I've got kind of a side comment okay, on, okay. on that. So, well, actually, Mikey, just, go for. Oh, mm. I just say very. I just say very quickly that I don't think we should get rid of specializations. But when the university's gotten to a point where everyone's just specialist and no one can see the whole, then there's then then there has to be some sort of feedback loop between the two. I think that's. I mean, I, there's more that we could be saying, but. Uh, right, yeah, for example, yeah. like the graduate program I went through in education, it's called curriculum instruction and foundations, but there's no, and the foundations is supposed to be what are the ideas at the center of education, there's no courses on foundations. And when I asked to write a thesis exploring the foundations of school and why we have school and how we could do it differently and what we do well it's like, well, we don't know how to do that. You're gonna have to figure. You're gonna have to figure that out. We know how to do uh, qualitative, qualitative and quantitative research and run stats and do all this other stuff. I was like, yeah, but what do we do with all that information? Well, somebody needs to interpret it. You know, yeah. they should take. They should take a course on the science of logic. Yeah, just <laughs> a little plug yeah. there. Gotta get the plug. Go, Mikey. Okay, so all I really want to add in to this discussion so far, especially with what was just said, is of course I want to bring in this Lacanian concept of the university discourse, because from what's been said, it, it sparked something in me and made a connection. Dave, is there any way, could you actually show the university discourse? Could you put that up on screen so everybody could see it? I Google think so. If fast. I just Google search it, yeah. Yeah, yeah let's see. Let's do that real quick. I, I, you can as well do a screen share, just so you know, but yeah. Okay, yeah, it'll take 10 minutes if I do it. University discourse. Okay, let's see. Okay, uh, screen share, folks, here we go. All right, and uh, so I'll just pull this one up. Oh, no, that one's blurry, I think. There we go. There's Levi's blog. Cool. All right, hold on. Okay, so what we have I, here. I'll, I'll, yeah, we so, got to be descriptive for the people who don't have eyes on screen for the podcast side of things. Well, let's do this. Like trying to even visualize this on the podcast side. What I'll do is I'll just 
I'll actually just say the point. If they want to go look at this formula, because it is, it's like an algebraic formula we're looking at. And if, if you just focus on the formula, I mean, it basically means nothing. But here's what Lacan is saying here, is that what is driving the university discourse? And by discourse, we mean a, like a, a social formation, a social link, a social dynamic, right? That's a fundamental structure of social organization. He says that what the university does is it puts knowledge in the position of the subject, the driving, the, it's the main agency at work here is knowledge. And what I wanna say is, is that if you look at this formula, what's beneath knowledge is truth. And so in this way, you know, remember we're doing psychoanalysis here, what's hidden or what's beneath is the unconscious dimension of what's going on. And so the university nowadays will say, we're in the business of providing knowledge, of, of selling knowledge, right? But I think with this bigger question of the idea of the university that everyone here is contemplating and that Gaspers was focused on, um, the question is, what do we want a university that's oriented towards knowledge or do we want a university oriented towards truth? Because from the Lacanian perspective, they are totally different things. In fact, we can focus on this constant develop of, uh, development and accumulation of knowledge, like Cadell was talking about, like people, I mean, and of course their drive, their, their form of enjoyment gets hooked on this, right? But on a, on a bigger social platform, um, not platform, a bigger social scale, we want to ask, okay, but the, the tricky thing is, is this constant accumulation of knowledge can actually function ideologically to blind us, to obfuscate the truth of our social situation. And by truth here, I mean the economic contradictions of capitalism, power relationships, right? That's why S1 in this formula is hidden beneath S2 because S2 is in the position of agency. It's the driving force. It's what would take credit for organizing the situation. But the S1 is actually in the position of truth underneath that. And so Lacan's point is that the university seems to be all about this kind of free space where it's about learning knowledge and developing you know, your understanding of the world. But it also has this dark side, which is beneath this this idea of, oh, this is all just about objective knowledge. It actually helps reproduce power dynamics, um, social inequality, uh, it, it protects capital, right? It, I mean, that's what the neoliberalization of the university has been, is it's serving that hidden S1, which is capital. And so my basic point for bringing all this up is simply the fact that we need to always ask ourselves, should the university be knowledge oriented or should it be truth oriented in this bigger sense? And I think that gets at the heart of trying to rehabilitate the idea of the university. Is that the, I think we would say in principle, the truth ought to be oriented or the university ought to be oriented towards truth, the unconscious dynamics and the fundamental presuppositions at work in our society, instead of just building objective bodies of knowledge that really have no bearing on anything and that therefore function ideologically. That's it.
Wonderful. And before we hand it over here to Aiden, and remember, folks, it's about 10 more minutes before we close out. Before we hand it over to Aiden, though, I just want to say, Mikey, I know how busy you are, but if you want to get published in the anthology that will have something from this course, I just wanted to say, I know you'd be able to slap what you just said together really easy and elaborate with Bordeaux because you've already written the American translation to Bordeaux's forms of capital and Bordeaux was primarily focused on the production and reproduction of class society through academic forms of social and cultural capital accumulation. So okay, yeah, let's let's evaluate your presupposition. I can slap this together quickly. Who are you kidding? <laughs> Thousand word limit. Yeah, right. I can't even yeah, never. I, I don't even have a joke for that. All right, Aiden. Aiden, I think you're still muted. There we go. I figured it out. Uh, so I was just going to um, reply to Mikey. I was just saying, thinking, I guess, that... Uh, the acquisition of knowledge usually comes in the pursuit of truth. Um, at least in my experience, it's not, you can't wholly separate the two, which is, I think, what's been done at university lately. Um, so it's, in my brief time there, it's what I experienced is there was a, you know, a set of facts that you memorized and um, it, it was separate from actually finding truth. No one, no one really seemed interested in uh, finding truth versus exploring the truth in order to gain uh, actual knowledge. That's all. That's all. I yeah, have. but 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 they have. But I mean, the very fact that I agree that on some basic level, when you're pursuing knowledge, it like I think a philosopher pursuing knowledge is to facilitate some sort of greater appreciation for the truth even if the truth is something we can never actually fully flesh out it's what drives this this pursuit of knowledge i agree with that but i think what happens is with capital uh, capitalism is it does force a separation and there's a whole mechanism in place at the university to keep people in specialized fields so there is no yeah. kind of overarching like if somebody is trying to work on chemistry, they're never going to be able to do a metaphysics or an ontology of the chemical or somehow have the, the freedom to try to somehow connect chemistry to ethics. They would go, well, that's how are you gonna, you're corrupting chemistry by mixing it with the humanities or whatever. So they don't have this space of building something bigger. And I think that is in part, this mechanism of capital. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. Specialize totally everybody, and, that. and that's what Lacan, in some sense, is getting at: is that this, this specialization of knowledge is there to reproduce capitalist society and the the structural exploitation inequality, et cetera, that that comes with it. Yeah, for sure. No, that that I totally agree with. The the reproduction of uh, capital is kind of what everyone's concerned about currently. Based on no, I think your, your point, I like your point. I'd say like, it's almost like we want to fight for knowledge to be able to be connected 
the truth. Is yes. Right. Yeah. That's that's what that's what I was getting at. Is yeah, uh, totally with knowledge you. should be connected to the truth. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Absolutely. All right. One of the things that we'll be getting into as well to bring it back to Jasper's is because science is so successful at qualifying forms of knowledge that are repeatable and can be verified by different people, it becomes the model for truth. But it, his point is that it doesn't have a monopoly on all forms of truth. There are forms of truth and forms of vision shaft right, that uh, are outside of the domain of the empirical sciences. And so this is one of the things that we're trying to be track out here is like, what is his philosophy of science? What is his theory of truth? Brian is developing a lecture on Jasper's theory of truth that will come later. And for the time being, I'll basically just say, he says that, you know, it's impossible to like fully elaborate, like, what truth is and how how it's acquired, because in a sort of sense, it's a process, and and uh, and it's and, and and it's a process that's never over, and it's also in part an attitude, and so yeah, well, thinking thinking how uh, because science is very successful in this domain, that becomes the model for truth. How does that obfuscate or obscure other things? And I'd use the example from Goodwill Hunting. Ann and I watched that this week. Mikey has been saying, we got to watch that. I just put up a great meme about it yesterday. Uh, but in Goodwill Hunting, the, the basic story is that the janitor working at Harvard solves like this formula, this mathematical equation that's so, so, so you know, everyone else has been stuck on it. And, you know, it, basically like he could get like a, a Nobel prize for the fact that he solved this, but he doesn't want that acclaim. He doesn't want to do this for a living. He kind of takes pride in his working class roots. He's not. And so you get this math professor who finally discovers that it was uh, Will Hunting that had solved it. And so then this math teacher really wants to get Will Hunting to become, you know, just do math. You're so good at it. You're such a natural. You have to just do that. Um, and he doesn't want to do it. Uh but at one point, you know, basically to get him out of uh, jail time, they set him up with a probation deal where he goes and spends a day or, you know, an afternoon with this math professor every week. And then he also has to take counseling with Robin Williams. And so that's the whole movie. Basically, it's fantastic. You got to watch it if you haven't seen it. But there's a scene where Will Hunting solves another equation and this other math professor not the one who discovered Will Hunting, but just some other, you know, colleague of that professor is in the room and is visibly pissed off that Will Hunting just solved this equation so easily. And, and the, you know, one of the, it's like the TA guy comes over, kind of pats him on the back and says, you know, it's a lucky, he, it's, it's a lucky guess, you know, um, you know, it, these things happen or something like that, you know, it tries to offer some consolation and that professor's all and like storms out okay here's the thing though that would not have happened if it had been philosophy that would not have happened if it was theory that would not have happened if it was anthropology history economics that would not have happened because it's only in math 
where you can simplify something down to a formal equation that is visibly demonstrable in front of everybody. All eyes can see the solution is solved and we see it. Proof's in the pudding. It's done. You might not like it. You might be jealous, but he got it and you didn't. So the accolades go to this janitor. End of story. But in philosophy, theory, the softer sciences, the humanities, the interpretive fields, we could just say the science of interpretation and the of, of human experience and making sense of our lives in this world, that's never something that can be simplified down to an equation where everybody in the room goes, ah, damn, kid, you got it. And so this gets at the problem. We love that kind of objectivity of feeling like, okay, we all see it. It's solved. We don't like this feeling of uncanny unease of there's a lot of ways to interpret this situation, right? And so if Michael Downs was in that room and he talked some Lacan and tied it into all the rest of the theory he's done and everything like that, that professor wouldn't have stormed out. That professor would have pulled some Oh, I say the same thing, basically, in some journal article that I published and actually and then make a few other references. And then, you know what I mean? Like, and then in the humanities, there's no end to it. There's never an end to the conversation and no one ever just walks out done. So that's part of the issue that we're all dealing with. Now, before we close out, I just want to give anybody who's got some final thoughts and opportunity to say what they're thinking about. Any final questions you want us to be thinking about as we read chapter one? Now's the time. I think in light of this conversation, one thing that I, you know, especially going back and rereading through this again, the big issue that I think mattered in this conversation that matters to me is to what extent is that relationship between the individual seeking truth and the universe or the institutional structure connected to the state essential what is that to what extent is that built in and why is that built in because you know following mikey's thoughts we we could start thinking in a direction where maybe it's not or maybe if we do put truth at the center why does it have to be some large institution funded and supported by the state why does that connection have to be there and um the the further chapters will explore that more um and I want to understand that, but I mean, that's a big question for me, so. I, I think we should have at least one meme of Mikey getting a Nobel Prize for his Lacan seminars with Theory Underground. I think at least <laughs> one meme, that, that's a few memes probably there. I'm, lo I'm looking at you, Andrew, I'm looking at you. The funny thing is, I so the reason, I, I was the one, like the super ego pressuring Dave and Ann to watch Goodwill Hunting. And it's kind of, it's this ongoing joke with all of the people I grew up with. They call me the Goodwill Hunting of philosophy. And it's, you know, it's the whole like from Raytown, working class, all this kind of stuff and taught myself philosophy. But no, it's, it, it is funny whenever they say that. I'm like, oh my God, that dude was, and I've always said that, and I love what Dave, how Dave phrases it, like philosophers aren't geniuses in the way that somebody in science can be, because there are these like 
mathematical objective standards. Um, all of us, I mean, look, philosophers, we are, I, I think at our best, we're concerned with the truth, but in our everyday lives, there's a lot of sophistry in all of us. <laughs> and uh, it, it's learning to how to slip out of things, right? And I'm not saying that's a great thing, but philosophy does enable you to always be able to kind of slip out of a kind of a, a rhetorical situation where you're back into the corner, so to speak. And so, um, but yeah, I, I, it's just funny. Uh, I'm glad they we got a Goodwill Hunting meme out of Dave watching it. I think you're saying that philosophy will teach you to be a Weasley little shit. I mean, on, I, but right, like, I mean, that's kind of what we get with Plato's dialogues with Socrates and the Sophists. Like, that is this core issue that's always been there in philosophy from the beginning. Is, is philosophy this kind of dutiful, ethical pursuit of truth, or is it bullshitting, the art of bullshitting? And I think if we view it dialectically, what if, what if getting at the truth is learning how to master bullshit, right? It's a weird kind of thing. It's like learning the art of how bullshit works and how to think through it is truth in a way. Anne. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of maybe something to think about as we move forward into getting into the real text of the book. Um, not only the question of what is truth, um, and I know kind of Brian has been thinking about that one too, but why do we as human beings need truth? And so with that, you know, thinking about the big ideas of like our humanity and our personal self-actualization and what is the good life, that's definitely something that I will be kind of pondering as we go throughout this text is why does this matter to us as human beings? And on that note, oh no, Cadell, you gonna say something? No, 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 no. Oh, okay, I thought I saw you come unmuted at that moment. Okay, so on that note, um, I guess the last thing I'll say for everybody is this is going for six weeks. This is, that means five more of these meetings. And then uh, we'll keep talking and thinking one-on-one -on -one and also in the group and in the forum and everything like that about the possibility of your final project, what you kind of think you want to do. We've already come up with a couple of ideas so far. I wanted to encourage people to also think about taking the professional managerial class consciousness course that begins on the 25th of January that is being taught by myself and Elton LK. There is in a sort of sense, less reading with that one. We're not reading entire books. We're reading two essays and a few excerpts of some books. But the reason that these two things go so well together is because the professional managerial class is defined by the fact that it goes to college for a salary career. And so then the question becomes a, one of the reproduction of uh, class society. What is the role of the PMC? And so this is like the ideal of the university. The PMC course is kind of about the real of the university, right? It's about that unconscious truth that Mikey was talking about. And so they go really well together. And so if you really wanna make a killer paper uh, or a final project, 
one thing you can do uh, is combine sources from the two courses and the conversations and bring it all together into something that you don't even finish writing until like, you know, mid-March or something like that. So just be thinking about it. And even if you decide not to take it, you'll be able to watch some of the stuff from that because like this conversation, it's not going to be broadcasted live in the public. It'll be live unlisted. So you can watch this after the fact if you participated and you want to watch it. And you can share it with somebody technically if you want to. I'm not going to say you can't. But the parts that will go public, it's going to be the podcast. It'll be public on the podcast. And then will also be republished in smaller bite-sized pieces. So like if someone said something really excellent and they don't mind being clipped and shipped to the you know, public, then I'll probably repost that on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. And it's just a way of kind of putting these ideas out there so that people see, oh, this is the kind of stuff that's going on there. Cool. <clears throat> and with that, I'll just say, I'm so excited. I'm, I just couldn't tell you how excited I am. Every one of you here, uh, I am just absolutely delighted that you've joined, that you're committing to this. Um, Andrew came in last second, and even then he wasn't going to make it today. He was going to miss today and come next week. No, I'm so happy you were here that you participated. Nick, I know you're watching this after the fact. We're so excited for you to be able to join in some of the conversations about this, even if you're not here for the live version of this. But just everybody, this is this is the kind of thing that I was missing when I was teaching at the university. And I'm really excited for the fact that this is just the beginning of something that's going to go a lot longer, a lot deeper, a lot richer. So thank you so much for joining. I hope you all have a good rest of your week. Thanks, everybody. This is fun. Congratulations on the first class of the first course in Theory Underground. And congrats to Mikey for the Nobel Prize. I mean, it's yeah. no small. Get out of there. here. <laughs> no, I, it was, it's so cool to see all of you in this same chat. Like, I, it's, it's kind of surreal, but I love it. I feel like Michael would reject the Nobel Prize like Sartre did. <laughs> <laughs> does, it, does it come filled with beer? Yeah. I, here's the thing that Sartre is. I guarantee you, Mike, you would accept it if it had included with it him getting to retire from wage labor. Yeah, that's that's it. Like, keep keep this little uh, statue. Just let me out of wage labor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bye, bye, folks. All right, bye.